over 250 Christians slaughtered by Islamists in Sri Lanka, Jesus was not a Palestinian, Israeli election results in the big Netanyahu win, plus more on this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. You know, when you're preparing for one of these broadcasts, or maybe you're thinking about next week's broadcast and what you know, I mean, you know that you know is going to be the topic you lead out on, you need to learn your lesson. (laughs) That's not how news works. And by you, I'm talking about me. I'm learning my lesson. That's not how life works. There's evil in the world. Pure. I mean, if I could use that word in relation to evil, pure, utterly depraved, I would even use the word demonic, horrific evil. I really never imagined in a million years I'd be talking about Sri Lanka, technically not even uh, in the Middle East, south of an island there, south of India, uh, Buddhist majority country at that. So I really, I mean, thought never came to my mind that I would ever be talking about Sri Lanka. Yet here we are. Here we are. The latest figures are that over 250 Christians, yes, Christians, not Easter worshipers, unless there's something I'm not aware of that they're worshiping the god Ishtar or something, uh, Christians were slaughtered by Islamic extremists, and what it looks right now, uh, what it looks like right now, the Islamic State, working with multiple terrorist groups, uh, Nathanal Thahid Jamaut, I botched that totally, and Jami Yathul, Malathu Ibrahim. You ever heard of those? I certainly have not, and yet here they are making world news. The Sri Lankan government said there were nine suicide bombers total, and they have identified eight of them. Three churches and four hotels were bombed this past Sunday, Easter morning, as Christians were worshiping and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ peacefully not hurting anybody, not doing anything to anybody except worshiping God, except gathering together to celebrate Him. Not preaching hatred, not preaching death to those who disagree with them, not antagonizing or holding any animus to anybody, but just rather gathering together to worship God I would at least hope in spirit and in truth. As John 4.24 said, those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. You know, there's really so much and so little you could say about this other than what what has uh, already been said. I, I didn't expect to really do this on the podcast, but um, 
Would you pray with me? This was a, a huge tragedy. Now, now, that being said, I mean, Christian persecution uh, is happening, you know, roughly 11 Christians a day on average being killed for their faith. So this isn't something that is uh, out of the ordinary of Christians being persecuted. I guess it's out of the ordinary that it would happen like this in Sri Lanka and on this large of a scale. But would you pray with me? I also want to pray, because I didn't do this on the broadcast, I also want to pray for New Zealand. Um, maybe the fact that uh, death and hurt came to kind of my own people, kind of hit home a bit more than it happening to people that are of a different faith. But that doesn't mean that they deserve any less prayer. So I'm going to first pray actually for New Zealand and just the aftermath there. This is going to be real quick. If you're not a person of faith, just feel free to listen along uh, and consider it a moment of silence or respect. If you are, consider praying along with me. I don't have any pre-written prayer or anything like that. But there is, there are nefarious forces at work that seek to just, I mean, look, it says it in the scripture. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have life abundantly. So whether it's the rise of anti-Semitism, which anti-Semitism, by the way, is anti-New Testament. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. The first several thousand Maybe 10, 20, 30,000 Christians were Jews. Christianity was so Jewish that they considered it a sect of Judaism. So it is ludicrous when the actual Messiah himself is Jewish, and yet we're seeing anti-Semitism on the rise even amongst conservative Christian ministries. We expect it from Islam. It's codified in their Quran and in their Hadith. I've been listening to th some stuff, uh, Christian ministries, people who saying that they're Christians, how they're talking about the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. You have got to be kidding me. You feel that way about Jesus? Oh, and by the way, Jesus was a Jew. He was not a Palestinian. We're going to get into that a little bit. There are nefarious demonic forces coming at work, whether it's from uh, those who are uh, just uh, from the radical Islamic side of things who consistently follow the Quran and uh, end up killing those who are not followers of Allah. Of course, those who are followers of Allah get, get killed in, uh, in the mix-up of all that as well. But even those who are not Muslims, that are either they're white supremacists or they're far left or whatever it is, uh, which I would put white supremacism in the far left easily because uh, the, the right wing in the U.S. is based off of constitutional governance and federalism and equality. So white supremacism actually has its roots in the Democratic Party, uh, which is the left, not the right. 
just to make that clear. Um, at basic history can teach you that. So anyway, I, I say all that because there is just, uh, there is a rise of anti-Semitism, but then of course there's a rise in obviously Christian persecution. And I guess in times like this, yes, we can talk about it and we should talk about it and we should discuss it and, and there should be solutions, but I also, I also think prayer is a is a solution as well. And even though there's a certain congresswoman who, who came out and said, what good are your thoughts and prayers when they can't keep people safe in the pew? I mean, it really is kind of ironic that Cortez would come out against thoughts. I mean, <laughs> come on. You can't make this stuff up. What good are your thoughts? I would put that question right back to her because her thoughts are not only worthless, they're dangerous, they're evil, and they will they would destroy our country. What good are your thoughts and prayers? You have no, that's so illogical. You have no idea what prayer has thwarted and stopped. Think the under December 25th underwear bomber who had a bomb on a plane and it didn't go off and nobody was killed. How many years ago was that? Five, six, I don't know how many years ago that was. So that guy was stopped. Terrorists are stopped all the time. Isn't it possible that any of those could be as a result of answered prayer? It sure could. It's just evil coming out against prayer. Is that really somebody we want in the United States Congress? Someone who comes in and discourages people from prayer? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So we're going to go against what certain congresspersons want us to do. And we're going to approach the throne of Almighty God. And we're going to ask him for healing and for restoration in New Zealand and in Sri Lanka. So Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. I really didn't expect to be <laughs> praying on this podcast. But in a situation like this, I just, I just simply can't help it. And Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that first to New Zealand, because I did not pray about that when we discussed it last time for New Zealand, we just pray for your restoration of that community. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move in that community. And we pray that the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and glorified at that mosque, that many, many, many people there including uh, some of the radical imams that are associated with it, would turn away from their evil and turn to Christ, and that you would reveal yourself powerfully, powerfully, to the people in those mosques in, in Christ Church, which was so uh, terrible irony that it was named, that it's in Christ Church of all places. Because we know your word does not condone anything like this. It actually condones the opposite, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, not, not, to, not to kill and hate and destroy our enemies. So Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus that you bring healing to those mosques, bring healing to that community, and that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified. And, and through Jesus, you would heal many, many people and bring them to yourself. And God, we ask for the Christians and their families in Sri Lanka, God, as, the, as it's still so unbelievably 
fresh. It's just not even a week. In five days, six days. God, I, I can't even imagine the unspeakable tragedy. I can't even imagine what people are going through. So we ask your hand of healing. We ask your hand of protection. And God, that in this time, that the dumbest thing that they could do, the worst thing they could do, would be to reject you. And the best thing they could do for healing, for love, would be to turn to you. I pray they, I pray none of them would reject you. But Lord, that through this, Lord, people would be healed. People would see your goodness and would be drawn closer to you. That you allow certain things to happen for a reason. And we don't know it. A lot of times we don't see it. A lot of times, but we know we can trust you. And I pray they would as well. I can't relate. I can't empathize because, well, I mean, who can? And unless you're in it, who can really understand or unless you've gone through it in the past? But Lord, I know you're the solution. We know you are the solution. And we know you are the source. Heal that community. Heal that community in Sri Lanka. And I pray that many people would come to know you and would would come to a, a relationship with you. That out of this great, 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 great evil, that good would come. And we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you guys for uh, thank you guys for doing that with me. Uh, so let's let's talk about some of the latest of what's going on, some of the news. Uh, this is Reuters, April twenty fourth. Sri Lankan officials revised revised the death toll from Easter Sunday bombings down by about 100 on Thursday, blaming the difficulty in identifying body parts at bomb scenes for the earlier inaccurate number. The new official figure was 253, down from an earlier 359. Deputy Defense Minister Ruan, no idea how to say the last name, said. He blamed inaccurate data provided by morgues for the discrepancy. The suicide bomb attacks on three churches and four hotels have exposed an intelligence failure within Sri Lanka, with accusations that warnings had not been acted on and feuds at the top levels of government had undermined security cooperation. The Defense Secretary, Hemasiri Fernando, resigned over the failure to prevent the attacks, although he insisted on Thursday that the authorities had been acting in response to intelligence tips from India warning of imminent attacks. Quote, we were working on that. All those agencies were working on that, Fernando told Reuters. He said he had resigned to take responsibility for institutions he ran, but said there had been no failure on his part. I mean, who knows? Maybe there wasn't. Maybe there was, but of course, that's what he said, and of course, he wants to protect himself, so who knows? Police issued names and photographs of four men and three women wanted in connection with the attacks as bomb scares and security sweeps kept the country on edge. Most of the victims were Sri Lankans, although authorities have said at least 38 foreigners were also killed, many tourists sitting to breakfast at top-end hotels when the bombers struck. And here we go. 
Who has claimed responsibility for the attacks? The Islamic State group has claimed responsibility. It released a video that showed eight men, all but one with their faces covered, standing under a black Islamic State flag and declaring their loyalty to its leader, who I don't even want to say his name. The government said there were nine suicide bombers, eight of whom had been identified. One was a woman. And look, I... I began this bot podcast really with the uh, during the time of the big demise, the big fall when uh, the Islamic State was down to two cities and down to one small city uh, in Bakuz, Syria, and then it now it's completely gone. They have no physical caliphate, and I said at the time. I think this is obvious, it's not some great brilliant insight, that just because they lose a physical location does not mean that they will not continue to work, or does not mean that they will not try to capture another location in the future, or does not mean that they're not going to continue to engage in terrorist acts? And uh, this is apparently what they've done. Now, just because they claim responsibility doesn't mean they actually were responsible, um, but uh, the, it, it does appear that they are still on the move. Pray, please continue to pray that their reign of uh, their terror ends and that they uh, turn away from such activity. As we know, many terrorists do. It's not a futile prayer. Like some think, some think it's futile to pray for these terrorists. Uh, I'm guessing certain people in Congress. A certain Cortez thinks it's futile to pray for these people. Don't listen to her. It is not. Terrorists are turning to Christ all the time. So, have faith and pray. A picture has emerged of a group of nine well-educated, homegrown suicide bombers. Two are brothers sons of a wealthy spice trader, sounds kind of <laughs> kind of 11th century, um, a source close to the family said. At least 76 people, including several foreigners, have been rounded up since Sunday. But police on Thursday, for the first time, identified seven people they were looking for and appealed to the public for help in finding, finding them. Photographs, apparently casual snapshots, posted with a wanted notice showed young bearded men, one with a Muslim cat, and three young women, all with head scarves. Look, terrorism is, it's real. Islamic terrorism is real. And it happened. And it struck. And I, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me the the inconsistency, especially on the left. I'm not saying the right is perfectly consistent at all, but I, I want you to I want you to imagine with me right now. Use your imagination. Don't worry, it's not Narnia level or a Tolkien level imagination. It's 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 pretty basic. Imagine for a second that it's uh, we're in March uh, and. I believe it was end of March. Uh, yeah, end of March or when the New Zealand attacks happened. All right. 
And imagine a few days later, CNN, the communist news network, runs, um, uh, has, has a series of town halls of Democratic candidates, all right? Imagine, imagine if that were to happen. Now, imagine this. In these town hall meetings, neither the host or anybody in the crowd mentions or brings up the New Zealand attacks. Now, can you, is there even a universe where we could fathom that happening? No, there is not. <laughs> you don't have to have um, a deep, deep imagination um, to understand that such a thing would never occur. Now, imagine this. Imagine this. Over 250 Christians killed, 500 injured, and a coordinated, sophisticated Islamic terrorist attack in a foreign nation. And the next day, the Communist News Network holds a series of town halls. The next day. Did I say the next day? Like the day after. CNN holds a series of town halls. I don't want to spoil it for you. I'll just read it. This is from the Washington Times. Sri Lanka terrorist attacks ignored by CNN town hall with 2020 Dem hopefuls, according to Media Watchdog. But, given incarcerated felons, even convicted terrorists, voting rights was discussed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to your Democratic Party. But, Ron, but Winston, this is Mitty's news brief. This is Mitty's news brief. What do you... This is relevant. Is what it is. This is relevant. Maybe it's not particularly Middle East, but I don't care. I, I'm an American. I love my country. This is insane. I, it's really unfortunate what the Democratic Party is turning into. It, it was a lot nicer, honestly, when they were, uh, I think on some things are very extreme anyway, they were extreme, but at least on some things they were pretty moderate. That it, they're they're going full scale socialist, full scale anti Christian, uh, full scale uh, pro Islamic Sharia. The, the the Democratic Party is, I, and I just honestly wonder if it's a sinking ship because there's no way the majority of Americans is where the Democratic Party is. There's absolutely no way. And thank God for the Blexit movement, the Black Exit movement, and uh, uh, thank God for the Walk Away movement. Because uh, these people taking over our country, as we can see with just, you know, you look at Omar, you look at Tlaib, you look at Cortez, and you go, this is the future of the Democratic Party. They are radical, radical. So they must be voted out. CNN string of town halls Monday night lacked questions on the Sri Lanka terror attacks that killed over 300 people. The presidential hopefuls were asked about the voting rights of Boston Marathon bomber 
Zokar Sarnaev. What about that? The media watchdog newsbusters monitored five back-to-back -to -back town halls with 2020 candidates without witnessing a single question on Easter Sunday's anti-Christian terror attacks. That's it. There's more to this I could read on the story, but that's it. I mean, that's all you need to know. That, to me, is... Is... It's telling. Could you imagine the day after the New Zealand terror attacks? CNN having a town hall? And none of the Democratic candidates mention it. However, you've got five times the number of people killed in the Sri Lanka attacks. And this is the day after, and they don't even bring it up. That tells you everything you need to know. The very last thing the, Democra the Democratic Party cares about are Christians. Straight up. Now look, I... I condemn all terror attacks. I think it should all be talked about. That's why I talked about New Zealand and condemned it. It was evil. It was terrible. And, and this one as well. I think I'm being fairly consistent. This was, this is insane. I mean, at least on a foreign policy question, something. I mean, five seconds of silence. And, and look, and what we've seen, we've already seen plenty, there's plenty of evidence of anti-Christian bias from the Democrats in the Senate, as, as we have seen in their questioning of Trump appointees, Trump nominees for uh, different, different positions, especially Bernie Sanders. He is just an, a rabid anti-Christian. There was one more... So I think that's that's where I'm going to leave it. Yeah, that's where I'm going to leave it on Sri Lanka. But please pray. Please pray for the Sri Lankans. Please uh, continue to keep them up. Uh, and I will, as uh, there are further developments, I will keep you guys abreast on what is going on there. But for now, um, please continue in prayer. All right, I now want, this was something else. This was another thing that caught me by surprise. This was not something that I was planning on uh, leading out with, but uh, here it is. As many of you may have heard, and uh, if you were following me on Twitter, at MideastBriefing, please follow me there. Uh, also, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, you can, you can even ask Alexa to play Midi Snooze Brief Podcast, and the latest episode will be uh, to your ears instantaneously. So please subscribe to the podcast if you have not, but if you want a preview of what I'm going to be talking about on the podcast, please follow me on Twitter, at MideastBriefing. Uh, I got into a very interesting discussion with a couple atheists on Twitter. Uh, on the Reuters story that I heard earlier, or that, I'm sorry, that I was reading from earlier, I was looking at the comments on that story, and, and a guy made a comment that was puzzling to me because he said, if, if we didn't have religion or if people didn't 
have religion, we would value human life more. I read that and I was like, you have got to be kidding me. One group, one religion, has some radical teachings, and we're going to say that if there was not any religion, people would value life more? Now let's take a little step back and think about that for a second. If materialism is true, right? Materialism, if you're not familiar with the term, materialism is the idea that all that exists is what we can uh, feel, touch, taste, smell, right? The material world, matter, is all that exists. There's no spirit. There's no, uh, we don't have souls. There is no God. There are no angels. There's no spiritual realm. Everything that exists is matter. Now tell me this, in a scenario such as that, let's say if that could be true, right? Let's say that was true. Let's say that that was even a possible universe. Where in the world, or in the universe, would you get any idea of objective human worth? Now you might have your subjective, well, I'm a human And so I value another human like my wife or kids or friends or something like that. But in terms of any transcendent external standard by which we could say humans have value would be absolutely absurd. It doesn't exist. It can't exist because the only thing that exists is either my subjective standard of human value or my society's objective of my society standard of human value. But, you know, if we take that to its logical conclusion, if we, if we say, well, society determines that, really? Well, Nazi German society decided that Jews were, uh, Jews deserved death. They didn't deserve to live. That had no value at all. And in fact, negative value on humanity. That's what the Nazis believed as a society. Does that make it right? Does that justify, uh, it's essentially justifying the Holocaust and things like that. Justifying the Sri Lanka bombings, justifying the, the, (coughs) excuse me, justifying the, the New Zealand massacre. No, apart from God who can provide a, a standard of, of value, and this is true of morality as well, morality as well, you, you don't, you can't have human value. So anyway, I began, I attempted to point this out, and I told this individual that, look, no, true true religion actually brings value to human life because we were made in the image of God, as opposed to being simply highly a highly sophisticated collection of molecules as a result of one big cosmic accident. We're a big accident. How can you ascribe value, any kind of objective value, to something that's just some big cosmic accident? Oh, and by the way, if you believe that the universe came from nothing, by nothing, there was this empty space. Of course, you got to ask yourself, where did that space come from? But there was this empty space, and suddenly, poof, the universe began out of nothing. You want to talk about faith. There are no crater believers than those who believe that the universe came from nothing by nothing, but all the while, 
they consider that uh, uh, they're the scientific ones. They're the ones who only believe things based off of science. Are you kidding me? Anyway, I pointed this out to them as well. <laughs> I, I just couldn't help myself. And eventually, I just got no response from them. They just, uh, at least from what I saw, um, and they just kind of, I guess, teetered off. And I told them, look, there are no greater believers than those who believe, because you, you simply have no evidence that the universe came from nothing by nothing, that that happened. Anyway, so Twitter's fun. Follow me, <laughs> Follow me on Twitter, at Mitty's Briefing. And by the way, uh, Christian uh, philosophy, Christian apologetics is uh, a bit uh, of a side thing for me, so I enjoy that. I would love to maybe do a podcast on that one day, so stay tuned. Who knows? Um, but uh, but uh, but that's not even Christian apologetics specifically. That's just theistic apologetics. The idea that uh, you're going to ascribe morality, you're going to ascribe worth to anything, and all we are is a big cosmic accident. What do our matter and, like I've talked about before, our matter and our molecules uh ascribe worth to me? Tell me what's good or bad. Tell me what's valuable, not valuable. The matter that makes up my body. It's ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. Okay, so follow me on Twitter at Mitty's Briefing. Now here's the question. This is, <laughs> really the thought had never crossed my mind, but you know what? I want to I wanna thank my, I, I think she's even, she's got to be my favorite congresswoman even more than Cortez. And you know what? No, I'm sorry. I'm not calling her AOC. I'm just not, okay? She's not JFK, uh, and she's not FDR, even though I'm not, like, a big fan of either of those guys. I think I like Kennedy more than FDR. But, uh, sorry, you don't you don't get the three-letter legendary status designation, at least from me. You're Cortez, and I'm not saying your whole name. It takes way too long. So, uh, I, but even more than her, and Rashida Tlaib, who gave her uh, congressional acceptance speech wrapped in a Palestinian flag. Of course, the Palestinian Authority, as we know, are terrorists, but that's we've mentioned that before. Th there's just something about Ilhan Omar. Just something about her that makes her my favorite new congresswoman. Okay, maybe I'm saying that uh, a little bit in jest. She is definitely my least favorite congressperson in the history of Congress people. Was Jesus a Palestinian? No. <laughs> Jesus was not a Palestinian, and I, I've linked to a couple articles on that that are really good on this at uh, midisnewsbrief.com in the show notes. Uh, as usual, all of the articles referenced in this podcast will be uh, will be linked there. This is uh, I've, I've used uh, him before. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts. If you want a good, uh, just solid uh, podcast focused on biblical issues and theology and philosophy, uh, Dr. Michael Brown, The Line of Fire, is a great podcast. I can't recommend it enough. I have been listening to it uh, pretty consistently. Um, and sometimes, sometimes he will talk about political issues. Um, he's, he's Jewish. Um, uh, and so he'll talk about Israel and Middle East type stuff. Uh, but for the most part, it, it is focused on, on the Bible, theology, uh, apologetics, things of that nature. I highly recommend it. So this is on askdrbrown.org. 
Jesus was not a Palestinian. <clears throat> Let me set the rec let's set the record straight. Jesus was a Galilean Jew, not a Palestinian Muslim. He celebrated Passover, not Ramadan. And he was called Rabbi, not Imam. His followers were named Yaakov and Yohanan and Yehuda, not Muhammad and Abdullah and Khalid. And he himself had one of the most common Jewish names of the day, Yeshua. <coughs> I've heard it said before, actually, a, a more accurate translation uh, than Jesus would actually be Joshua. But uh, anyway, that's, that's another thing. I haven't really studied that out, so <laughs> I'm not making any great claims here, but that, that's my understanding. As for the name Palestine, now this is real important. You're going to claim Jesus was a Palestinian. Uh, you got to get some, uh, you, you need to sift through some basic history, but I know she could care less about that. As for the name Palestine, it was not used in any widespread way to describe the land of Israel until 135 AD. In other words, more than 100 years after Yeshua's death and resurrection. And it was renamed Palestine by the Romans to mock the Jewish people thereby calling their ancient and sacred homeland the land of the Philistines. But it is not only anachronistic to label Jesus a Palestinian, it is also misleading. That's because the word Palestinian today speaks of non-Israelites, of non-Jews. It speaks of a people who claim that the land of Israel belongs to them, not to the Jewish people. And it speaks primarily of Muslims. That's what comes to mind when someone says Jesus was a Palestinian. And that's why Palestinian activists have tried to recast Jesus in their own image. Leading up to Christmas celebrations in Bethlehem last year, Fatah officials called Jesus, quote, the first Palestinian. And remember, this is Fatah who provides lifetime pensions to Palestinian Arabs who murder Jews, may murder Jews. And the better job you do, the more money you make. Anyway, I think that's an important I think that's an important side note when we're deciding whether or not we trust what these people say. Five years earlier in 2013, the PLO declared every Christmas Palestine celebrates the birth of one of its own, Jesus Christ. Remember, they, they don't we're gonna talk about the two state solution. We're gonna talk about the deal of the century in a minute. They don't believe in the two-state solution. <laughs> it's so funny how the world peddles the two-state solution as this ultimate, uh, kind of as this ultimate, uh, just quixotic solution. It's ludicrous. They don't believe in it. They believe in Palestine. They believe in a Jew-free. Palestine, no Israel, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. Back in 2005, the PA stated that we must not forget that Messiah Jesus is a Palestinian, the son of Mary, the Palestinian, <laughs> the son of Mary, have you ever thought of Mary as the Palestinian, Mary and Joseph, the Palestinians, give me a break, and Fatah even declared Jesus to be, quote, the first Palestinian martyr in 2015. What? 
So now Jesus is a uh, Palestinian freedom fighter. Are you kidding me? Look, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins, and that he rose from the dead. And those who choose to turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ receive eternal life. Um, this is this is unbelievable. This flies in the face of the clear biblical record, which, by the way, was written 600 years before the Quran. Anything but declaring that Jesus, who's revered in Islam as a prophet, but not as the crucified Son of God, was a first century Jewish rabbi. Instead, Jesus is recast as a Palestinian freedom fighter, born of a Palestinian mother, at war with the evil Jews, and, through Islamic eyes, a prophet of Islam. God forbid that he is recognized as Rabbi Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel. But it's one thing when Palestinian activists and Muslim propagandists recreate Jesus in their own image, calling him a Palestinian. It's another thing when a member of the House of Representatives does this same thing. Yet it was none other than Representative Ilhan Omar. Of course. <laughs> I mean, who else would it be? Who else would it be that would say horrific things like she like does apparently on like a weekly basis now? who retweeted a tweet from Omar Suleiman, which included the statement that, quote, Jesus was a Palestinian. In fact, the tweet highlighted the suffering of Palestinian Christians at the hands of evil Israel, further separating Jesus from his Jewish ancestry. It was for good reason that Rabbi Abraham Cooper took umbrage to Omar's retweet, noting that, quote, Palestine was a name made up by Romans after they crucified thousands, destroyed the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and exiled the people of Israel from their homeland. But Omar is not the only one to perpetuate this fraud. Oh, who's helping her out? Who's helping out Omar? Ah, the New York Times to the rescue. Yes, the New York Times. In an op-ed in the New York Times, published one day before the misleading tweet, Eric Kopech claimed that, quote, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, was most likely a Palestinian man with dark skin. Jesus the Palestinian! And note carefully that in an op-ed of roughly 700 words, the word Jew does not occur a single time. The same with the word Israel. Not one single mention. Look, I'm not saying all Democrats are anti-Semitic, but that's where their party is going. With people, look, they have not disciplined her at all. She's still on the Foreign Affairs Committee, even. You can believe that. Someone who um, fundraises for the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which, by the way, was an undidicted co-conspirator in the Holy Land Foundation trial, where they were uh, indicted for funneling money to Hamas. Yes, care does not care about us. Care cares about the dominance of Islam. And they prove that when they funnel money to terrorist organizations. And then we have a member of the U.S. House of Representatives who fundraises with that group. For that group. Oh, and then goes along and says that, quote, 
some on 9-11, quote, some people did some things. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, you're taking the quote out of context. You're blah. I am sorry. But when you describe, that's not out of context. When you describe 9-11 as some people did some things. Wow. I wonder if, if she was, if she was one of the people cheering. It makes you wonder if she was one of the people cheering when the towers came down. Or when the, uh, um, the church, uh, when the church in, um, in France, Notre Dame, was burning. She puts out this weird tweet just on how, like, it's, it's you know, diversity is good or something like that. I can't remember the tweet. But you're just like, what, what planet? Is this, is this lady on? Pray for her. I do. A lot. <laughs> I pray for her a lot. I have to, to, to help my heart not to really dislike her. So people that I really don't like. You want to know some people I really don't like on the world stage? There's plenty. But th there, are, there are a few people that when I think about, and I know there's bad actors all over, but there are a few people when I think about them, I have to pray for them. Or else my, my heart and my mind is going to go to a bad place. And I confess here publicly that it has <laughs> at times. Um, Erdogan in Turkey. If there is a guy that just, mm, I can be very angry and I could very easily fall into hatred for it is him because of what he is doing to that country. A relatively free um, Muslim majority country. He's, he's transforming into an Islamic caliphate. And even last I saw, challenging the results to the Istanbul election because he doesn't like the guy who won. Because the guy who won apparently isn't a big Islamic thug like he is. And Ilan Homar, she's another one of those. That when I think about her, I have to pray for her because otherwise my heart does not go to good places. Uh, Cortez, I, 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 <laughs> she, she would be funnier if she wasn't so actually dangerous and actually represented the thought process of apparently a good amount of people in this country. That's what's scary. Like she really is like a a, a perpetual SNL routine. And yes, I can't help but laughing at some of the crazy things she says at times, but. Ultimately, it's not funny because ultimately she does have power. She does have influence. And the more people call her out on her utter idiotic ideas, I'm not saying she herself is stupid. I don't call people stupid. I, I don't do that. But her ideas are beyond idiotic. And they're actually dangerous. Where was I? And note carefully that, in an op-ed of roughly 700 words, <coughs> the word Jew does not occur a single time. The same with the word Israel, not one single mention. Ironically, Kopich was explaining why he, as a black Christian, was mystified as a child at the, quote, fair-skinned, blue-eyed depiction of Jesus. Hey, Kopich, there's a movement called Blexit. Come on. The, Re the Republican Party is the big tent party. It is. For everybody who wants freedom, 
uh, for everybody who wants U.S. constitutional government and not some uh, just fantastical socialist utopia, this idea that we're going to use the government to bring about equality to all people is unbelievably ludicrous. It doesn't work. It's never worked. And we have modern examples such as Venezuela and Cuba to look at right now to go, is that really where we want to go as a nation? Do we really want breadlines? Do we really want to be eating our animals because we're starving? Then you've got Bernie Sanders coming out and say, oh, you know, breadlines, breadlines are a good thing because, you know, breadlines mean people are getting food. All the while, he's in the top 1%. He's got three homes. He's a millionaire. Oh, and by the way, he uh, thinks he should have a 52% tax rate, but he won't pay the 52% tax rate. He enjoys the benefits of the Trump tax cuts while at the same time denouncing them. And that's what happened on the Fox News town hall. It's like, well, look, you believe in a 52% tax rate? Pay the tax rate. You know, pay that rate. And he's like, well, and of course, Bernie Sanders responds to Martha McCollum. This is the standard line. Warren Buffett did the same thing when he was called out on it. Well, why don't you? You could do that. You could pay more. Well, Bernie, I'm not the one saying that we need to raise the tax rates. You are. So if you think the, the rich should pay 52%, pay 52%. Well, you know, and he just goes on to, goes on to whatever. Um, so it's, it's ludicrous, and it's hypocritical, and it's totally inconsistent. But that's the way socialism works. You have the elite at the top, and you have uh, a whole lot of poor people at the bottom. And you have societal unrest, you have um, protesting, you have anarchy, you have complete societal destabilization. So no, we don't need to go to a socialist system. And thank God for the electoral college that kept uh, Hillary Clinton out of office to that would have put us closer to that. Now, Hillary apparently herself is not a socialist, um, but she certainly would have put us closer and further uh, down that down that direction. And that's why Bernie Sanders cannot win. And I don't I don't believe if he is a nominee, I do not believe uh, believe that he will. Trump has just been too successful. <laughs> he just has. He just has. I mean, they play into his hands. Even this Mueller report, we're going to talk about a, an aspect of the Mueller report in a minute, but even the Mueller report kind of played into his, his hands. Two years, two years of just, just utter apoplecticness, if that's even a word. I mean, the media has just been beside themselves, just insane rabbit collusion, collusion, collusion. And you've got Robert Mueller and his like team of just rabid anti-Trump lawyers just going after him for two years, and they can't prove collusion, and they can't prove obstruction. So even though the report says it doesn't exonerate him, at the end of the day, it does. Because we are innocent until proven guilty. This two-year investigation could not prove collusion and obstruction, so it does exonerate him. Trump was absolutely right when he said it exonerated him. Okay, I, again, I'm going to have to do a domestic <laughs> domestic politics show. This is Mitty's News Brief. My 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 apologies, but I it it is just look, they're all playing into his hands. 
I mean, if Trump was able to win in 2016 without a record, and when the Democrats really don't have anyone great, the best they got is Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, this uh, pasty old white guy who's just you know uh, this authoritarian uh, socialist. Mm. Yeah, good luck. So yeah, no, Jesus was not a fair-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde hair. He wasn't a fair-skinned, brown-haired, uh, green eyes or whatever. Like Jesus wasn't a white guy, right? But you know, over here we're in the U.S., we got a bunch of Caucasians. We do Jesus movies, and a white guy gets picked, right? It's it honestly doesn't matter if a white guy plays Jesus or a black guy plays Jesus or a Hispanic guy plays Jesus or a Middle Eastern guy plays Jesus. His skin color doesn't matter. What matters is that he died on the cross for the sins of the world and three days later rose from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, and all who put their faith and trust in him as the Son of God will be saved. That's what matters. Now, was Jesus actually white? No way! <laughs> he wasn't white. I don't I, any reason to think he was, he was black. He was probably, uh, yeah, he probably was brown-skinned. Um... But I don't care. Um, it really doesn't make a difference to me whatsoever. He was a first century Middle Eastern Jew. And he would have been recognized for his Jewish religious garb, including the fringes at the corners of his garments. And he gives some Bible verse references there. That doesn't mean that Jesus is indifferent to the challenges faced by the Palestinians. Or that he doesn't identify with Palestinian Christians. Or that American Christians who support Israel should be anti-Palestinian. This is why I love Michael Brown. <laughs> Not at all. True friends of Israel, especially true Christian friends of Israel, should want justice and fairness for both the Israelis and the Palestinians. Amen. And this is why I'm so against the Palestinian leadership, because they do not provide this for their people. They're terrorists. As for Jesus... He is both the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, giving his life for Jew and Gentile alike. But let's call out this hijacking of Jesus' identity by Palestinian activists, Muslim leaders, a U.S. congresswoman, and the New York Slimes. Okay, I put Slimes in there. Uh, in the New York Times. Let's stop the lie in its track. So I thank God for guys like Michael Brown that, uh, uh, that with, with clarity and scholarship come out and just uh, refute and destroy this kind of stuff. And again, that'll be linked at MideastNewsBrief.com. And I want you, there was another uh, story in the Jerusalem Post. Uh, Dr. Brown uh, mentioned uh, Rabbi Cooper. And I wanted to say a few more things uh, that he said from this article that I thought were, were relevant, but not necessarily covered in Brown's article that I quoted like in full. I'm just going to hit a few highlights here because, because this is, this is important. And it's a, uh, it's important to the Israeli-Arab conflict because essentially what they want to do is erase the idea of a historic Jewish presence in the homeland. If Jesus was a Jew and he was in a Jewish uh, community in uh, what I call Israel, what they call Palestine, then there is, there's no Jewish state. If he was a Palestinian, then there's no Jewish state. 
there's no continual Jewish presence, and thus they have a better argument that the Jews do not deserve to get to have their own state in Israel. I'm telling you that this is this is garbage. This is propaganda garbage that's out of line of biblical history, out of line of ancient history. It, it's just ludicrous. And remember, there's never been a Palestinian state. Palestine was a region named by the Romans to kind of, uh, uh, you know, stick it in the eye of the Jews. To name it after their historic enemies. So, uh, no, there, there's never been a Palestinian state. It's a region. It's never been an actual nation state. So, uh, Rabbi Cooper said that for people who, quote, don't like Jews to begin with, it is a deadly combination of the Jews killed Jesus, which, uh, by the way, that trope is horrific. As a Christian, I, the whole, the Jews killed Jesus trope is just absolutely garbage, and it has been used to justify persecution of Jews on a big scale or even a smaller scale. You know, Jewish kids in school here in America, oh, Christ killer, Christ killer, Christ killer. It's horrific and it's awful and it's intellectually dishonest. As I mentioned before, Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. Uh, <clears throat> the first several thousand Christians were Jews. So Jewish was Christianity. It was considered a Jewish sect. So, uh, yes, the Jewish leadership was responsible for Jesus going to the cross, uh, per the New Testament. But, for one, the heroes of the story, the heroes of the New Testament, are all Jews. The entire New Testament, except for two books, were written by Jews. Um, so, this... this this idea that somehow the Jews as a whole are evil because of what happened to Christ is ludicrous. They're both the, the heroes, the Jews are the heroes of the story, and the villain. But it's not just the Jews that are the villain of, of the story. It's every single one of us in the whole entire freaking world that has ever sinned. We, just as much as the Jews or any other ethnic group, Christians believe that we, because of our sin, put Jesus on the cross. The Jews are not uniquely special. If Jesus had come to uh, you know, a different ethnic group, they would have done the same thing. Because ultimately, Jesus, Jesus came to die for our sins, and it was actually God's will. I believe, as a Christian, for Jesus to die for us. And doesn't say he died for the sins of the Jews. He died for the sins of the whole world. It was all of us that put him on the cross. We are all, no matter your ethnicity, in that sense, Christ killers. Because it was our sin that he went to the cross for. But, beautifully, he laid down his life willingly. His love for Jew and Gentile was so great that he died an unbelievably excruciating death on the cross for us. So this, uh, this, this Christ killer trope is just, it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart 
that throughout the centuries that Jews have dealt, uh, have received persecution from those who claim to be Christians. When the scripture actually says that the gospel is to go to the, the good news, the good news, not you're a Christ killer, not you, you, you put Jesus on the cross, not uh, you dirty Jew, no. The good news, it actually says in Romans chapter 1, is to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. The Jews got priority with the good news. It went to them first. So you can't sit here and tell me that, that they're inferior when God, as an ethnic group, put them as a priority when it comes to the gospel. And that's why the first several thousand Christians were Jews. And they weren't suddenly not Jews anymore because they became Christians. <sighs> I'm sorry, but I love the Jewish people, and I think even more so because I'm a Christian. So it breaks my heart, the idea that throughout history, those who claimed, those who said and claimed they were Christians, persecuted Jews simply because they're Jews, simply because they don't believe in Jesus, going against the very words of Christ, who said we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And those uh, Jews weren't, weren't persecuting them even. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't even actively working against them. Okay, where was I? Um, the myth that Jesus was a Palestinian dates back to the days of Yasser Arafat, when his trusted Christian Palestinian, uh, Christian Palestinian advisor, Hanan Ashrawi, made the claim. Since then, the idea resurfaces now and again, according to Cooper. Quote, the absurdity of it is breathtaking, Cooper said of Jesus being a Palestinian. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Think about who his parents were. His mother, Mary, was betrothed, was betrothed to uh, Joseph, the carpenter. In the Gospels, there is no mention of Palestine, only Judea, which is where Jews lived. If you aren't aware of this, Jews, the word Jews, comes from the word Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you know your biblical history a little bit, originally there were, there were 12 tribes. And then eventually, you had the, uh, after Solomon, you had the split, 10 northern tribes, and then uh, Judea in, in the south, uh, Judah in the south. And it's from that that, the, that we call um, people Jews, from the tribe of Judah. That's what's mentioned in the scriptures, not, <laughs> not Palestine. It's ludicrous. He was a Jew. He lived in Judea. Unbelievable. Cooper said that if the... And here we go. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> this is what it all comes down to. Truth doesn't matter. But politics does. Cooper said that if the Palestinians admit that Jesus was a Jew, then the idea that the Jews only arrived in Israel in 1948 and occupied Palestinian indigenous land becomes an absurdity. He said Omar, quote, knows this narrative is false, but also that it has an inherent power to it, said Cooper. Quote, the Benjamins, remember, 
uh, with APAC, it's all about the ben all about the Benjamins, all about the money. So that's one uh, Jewish trope. Uh, the big lie of dual loyalty, right? That Jews are uh, more loyal to Israel than they are to America because they're Jews. Um, <clears throat> Jesus is a Palestinian. It is all rewriting history to plant in people's minds that the Palestinian people go back thousands of years when they do not. When they do not. And remember, Palestinians, were, remember, was the name of a region. And so you could be a Jewish and be Palestinian. You could be Arab and be Palestinian. You could be Christian and be Palestinian. Like, it, <laughs> it was never a nation state. The Jerusalem Post used to be called the Palestinian Post. The Jerusalem Post, uh, run by Jews, used to be called the Palestinian Post. Because it was just about the, the name of the region. Never a nation state. She is a very clear person, Cooper continued. Ilan Omar is a clever anti-Semite, so truth does not play much of a role anyway. He added that when an elected member of the U.S. Congress retweets such a thing, that takes things to the next level. And boy, does it. Um, I almost feel like I need to do a whole show just on Ilan Omar and her, and her anti-Semitism and her ties to terrorism. That is why... The Trump administration, and I was hoping that they would uh, label the, the Muslim Brotherhood and that they would label the Council on American-Islamic Relations as, uh, as terrorist groups. When you financially support terror, I am sorry. You are a terror group. I don't care if it's Islamic terror. I don't care if it's uh, uh, white supremacist terror. I don't care if it's black supremacist terror. Whatever it is, if you support the murder of innocent civilians, or you support groups that engage in the murder of innocent civilians, you're a terrorist group. Plain and simple. Okay, wow. I, I, my, I expected to be through my first two topics in like an hour. I'm sorry, in like 30 minutes, and it's taken an hour. So I'm going to have to hit some highlights here. Uh, real quick, let's talk Israel election results, and then I also have a, a kind of a longer article, nine takeaways from Israel's historic election uh, that I find found was interesting. But I just wanted to hit, uh, I just wanted to hit kind of how Israeli elections work, real quick. I got to turn off my screensaver. I talk too long, and I don't move my computer around, and all of my monitors, <laughs> all of my monitors go dark. Uh, Let's talk uh, Israeli elections, because they are different. I'm sure you would assume that they would be different, but they're actually quite a bit different. And I think that uh, they're pretty interesting. As you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, proved the polls wrong, even though he was under investigation, um, even though he had a media that was against him, he prevails. Wow, doesn't that sound familiar? Does that sound kind of vaguely familiar to if you're uh, especially on the west side of the Atlantic of the Atlantic Ocean? Yeah, there are definitely some parallels between Trump and Netanyahu, and I'm just I'm loving watching it because <laughs> I love both of those guys. Um, now, does that mean I agree with every word they say, or I think a tweet it was? Uh, 
stupid or not right? No. But if you look at what Trump has done for this country overall and what he has done on the foreign stage, I, I just, I'm agape. I, I can't believe it. I can't believe we have a president like this. It, it's, it's mind-boggling. Boy, I will miss him when he is gone. All right, so how do Israeli elections work? Israelis, age 18 and older, regardless of race or religion, elect their parliament, the Knesset, for a four-year term. By the way, this is, this is from AIPAC, the American-Israeli is, is uh, uh, Political Action Committee, um, I'm sorry, Public Affairs Committee. And so, you know, AIPAC is all about the Benjamins. Uh, they, uh, U.S. Congress people who uh, support Israel, they're paid off by AIPAC. And that, that was another kind of little Twitter adventure I got into with a guy, um, actually yesterday, um, who uh, basically said that, um, uh, you know, APAC is just, a, they just pay people off, and they're just, uh, you know, it, it, it was, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was ridiculous. I'm like, dude, it's a lobbyist group. They're a lobbyist group. People on the left, people on the right, people on the center. It's a freaking lobbyist group. Okay, and if you're gonna call out APAC for lobbying, you gotta call out everybody for lobbying. That's ludicrous. Um, and uh, and his response was, well, you know, uh, uh, Israel commits war crimes and blah blah. I'm like, you have no proof of that for one. And number two, uh, how about the war crimes of the Palestinian leadership in Hamas? And then that was the end of the conversation. I mean, the PA pays terrorists. They give them lifetime stipends. Yeah, he, he had no response to that. He went, he went dark. He went quiet after that. And I actually tried to be, on some level, nice to the guy because I felt like he was maybe seeing things a little bit. And I said to him, I invited him. Look, I respectfully, without any animus, invite you to reconsider your position. You don't have to be a Zionist to believe that it's wrong for Hamas to indiscriminately fire rockets at Israeli citizens. Oh, and who, by the way, may also, they could, they could hit Arabs. 20% of the Israeli population is Arab. Give me a break, man. I mean, you could be killing some of your fellow anti-Zionists. I, I try not to be, because I could tell he was maybe, I don't know, getting a little softer. And so I got a little softer with him, and I just invited him to reconsider his position. But uh, he never responded to me after that. Okay, so Israelis cast their well, this is interesting. Israelis cast their votes for a political party rather than individual candidates. So, like, you would cast your vote for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or some other party, not for Trump or for whoever is against him. Vote Trump, by the way. <laughs> That's who you want to vote for. Uh, each party that receives more than 3.25% of the vote gains seats in the 120-member Knesset based on the proportion of votes it gains from the national electorate. So you've got 120 seats, right? You must gain in, in the, their Knesset, their Congress. So you must get at least 3.25% of the vote to get one seat in the Knesset. So what happens after the election? A new government must be approved by the majority of the Knesset. In order to achieve a majority vote, a coalition of political parties must be formed since no single party has ever had enough seats to rule on its own. 
So basically what that means is Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party got uh, 36% of the vote. But that's not a majority uh, to, be able, to be able to form a governing coalition. Well, what do I mean by governing coalition? Well, let's take a look at the Israeli election results. So in the Israeli election results, I think you had about 15 parties uh, that, that have seats or uh, something of that nature. Um, but uh, Likud got, um, I'm sorry, not 36%, uh, 36 seats. So Likud got uh, 36 seats. Uh, Kahol Lavan got 35, which is the blue and white party, uh, uh, which uh, Netanyahu's main rival, Gantz. Um, and then there's Shah's got eight, United Torah Judaism, seven, and then it goes on and on. Well, so you don't have uh, a 65-member majority, right? Likud only got 30, 36. Not only they won, they got the most seats out of everybody, but you have to have at least 61 seats to have a ruling majority. So what do they do? They form coalitions with other parties. And, uh, and so with... The four other parties Likud formed a coalition with was Ashaz with, with eight seats, United Torah Judaism with seven seats, uh, Yisrael Betanu with five seats, and uh, Kulanu with four. Those are all right-wing parties. Netanyahu basically came out of this thing, not only with his party at the top of the list, but he's got a solid 65-member majority uh, in the Knesset. And basically, Reuven Rivlin, the president of Israel, as how it works in Israel, um, invites the winner to form a government. Uh, Reuven Rivlin uh, invited Netanyahu to form a government, and that's basically what he is in the process of right now. He has 28 days to do it um, from when this started, and then he can ask for like a two-week extension is, is basically how it works. So it's, uh, it's very different than, um, uh, than a... Uh, you know, that how we think of it, we think of voting for a particular candidate and uh, and then that candidate winning or losing and then the, you know, whoever is the majority in the House or in the Senate or whatever, they, you know, they're in charge. It's, it's, it's different that way. Now, ultimately, you can really kind of uh, hammer it down to right wing, center, left and all that. I mean, you can kind of, you can kind of see the... <laughs> Which one would be considered like the Republican Party over there? Which which one, the Democratic Party? But that's a but that's essentially how it works. You vote for the party. That party picks its candidates, and then uh, the whoever has the whoever can get the biggest coalition uh, can will actually be in charge of the government, and that's what happened with Netanyahu by being his Likud party and four other parties coming together. He's got a solid sixty-five seat majority, even though. The poll said otherwise, even though as I'm watching the election results and I'm watching things come in, as I'm watching things come in and I'm, I'm, I'm following the news, sure enough, you're just seeing the news more as it gets closer to election day, more and more outwardly left <coughs> Jerusalem Post <coughs> when they have stories such as Gantz to the rescue and, you know, things like that. Uh, seeing that happen, seeing him defy the media, defy the polls, if I could use a Trumpism, it's a beautiful thing. Is Netanyahu perfect? No, but neither are you, neither are me. It, Israel has prospered greatly with Netanyahu at the helm. He is now, by the way, 
Afroy, he was the youngest prime minister to ever serve. He was the first prime minister to actually be born in Israel. And now with his election, he will be the longest. He is now the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. Five terms. First in 96, then in 2009, um, and 2013, uh, 2000, I guess, 17. I might be missing one in there. But anyway, five, uh, five terms. Pretty, pretty remarkable. And look, Israel has become, under his leadership, a, uh, I mean, a world superpower. Where you have, I was going to get to this story later, but look, they, they, the Israelis printed a human heart. They printed a freaking heart. Israeli scientists print world's first 3D heart with human tissue. This is like a real deal heart, like with everything that you need inside of it for a functioning heart. It is a center of technology, of, of progress in so many ways. If you look at the um, relationships that he has formed with all these Arab go uh, governments that are actually willing to sit in a room with these people and with his relationship with Trump. We have uh, the U.S. recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The U.S. moving the uh, their embassy from Tel Aviv to uh, to Jerusalem, and now Trump recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Now, yes, that was Trump that did that. It was not Netanyahu per se, but. The relationship that he is able, the relationships that he has been able to form on the world stage, has benefited Israel greatly, and I'm ecstatic. Well, man, when there's a Netanyahu speech at the UN, I want to listen to it because <laughs> he tells it like it is. I remember the first time I heard him call out the UN Security Council and all of the just, uh, uh, just terrorists and, and uh, dictatorial murderous regimes on the Security Council, or gosh, or even the Human Rights Council is just deplorable, as we've talked about in the past. So uh, that's all I'm going to say on the elections. Uh, there's, I'll have more articles up at MiddySnoozeBrief.com for you to look at. Um, I, I did want to say, you know, Bernie Sanders is one of those guys that I... I can't really, I, I don't really have a whole lot of animus toward him, even though I've seen his anti-Christian rants um, with uh, Trump appointees. I, I, I don't know. There's just, he's kind of like the old crazy grandpa or something. <laughs> it is just uh, how he's like a, a rock star in the young community is just mind boggling to me. Um, I mean, I, I could see someone like a, a Beto O'Rourke a little bit more. I mean, I think he, he's younger. He can pretend to be a little hip hipper you know i can kind of understand that on some level i don't get bernie i don't get bernie sanders but uh we're about to get some you want some wisdom you want some wisdom from bernie sanders some some good foreign policy commentary on israel from the communist bernie sanders oh and, oh and this this story from the jns is is so telling and, and if you think i only uh get my Material from right-wing sources, this this is about to prove to you otherwise. Sanders! Netanyahu's governing coalition is right-wing, dare I say racist. Oh, 
just just love this guy. You you gotta love the communists. You got the communists. They're so pro-Jewish. They're so pro-Israel, aren't they? Aren't the communists so pro-Israel? Uh, yeah, I mean, I know the USSR. Who, by the way, that's where uh, didn't Bernie Sanders do his honeymoon in the USSR? Um, well, what a place! It's kind of like that Billy Joel song. You don't know how lucky you are uh, to be back in the USSR. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, Billy Joel? I mean, he's like one of my favorite artists. But dang, really? Back in the USSR to be lucky? This is the way that people think all the while they live in America under freedom and prosperity and all that. Like, really? It's so great. Go live in the USSR. And <laughs> report back to me. Um, it, it's, it's insane. Senator Bernie Sanders labeled the government under Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as racist on Monday. The self-described socialist, who lived on a kibbutz back in the 1960s, said the Israeli leader's governing coalition is a right-wing, dare I say, racist government. Okay, isn't that, this is what I was just talking about. The self-described socialist, who lived, past tense, on a kibbutz, kibbutz back in the 1960s, if you're not familiar with what a kibbutz is, it's basically like a commune. It's basically a uh, certain amount of people, uh, Jewish people live there, and it's a kind of a communist-style setup. Um, but it's funny that that's what they mention. <laughs> to prove Bernie Sanders' socialism, what do they have to do? They got to go back to the 1960s. Because let me tell you something, Bernie Sanders ain't no socialist, right? Uh, for one, like I just mentioned, uh, they don't mention how he honeymooned in the USSR. For one, they didn't mention Bernie Sanders, oh, who is a millionaire. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, oh, who owns three homes. Oh, Bernie Sanders, oh, who says that we should have a 52% tax rate, but he's not willing to pay that himself and is, by the way, enjoying the Trump tax cuts and enjoying the freedom and the prosperity of the United States of America. Now, they don't, they don't, no, Bernie Sanders, who lived on a kibbutz back in the 1960s. Oh, Bernie Sanders, he's just this, this wonderful, peaceful socialist, right? That's, that's, that's who he is. It, it, <laughs> And then, oh, and then they quote Bernie Sanders. Quote, this. Uh, y'all ready for this wisdom? Y'all ready for this? I am not anti-Israel. But the fact of the matter is Netanyahu is a right-wing politician who I think is treating the Palestinian people uh, extremely unfairly. What I believe is not radical, he continued. It, it's funny how he has to say that. <laughs> he has to preface it with that. You know when you have to preface it, I'm about to say something, but you know, what I believe, it's not radical. It's not. So you guys just believe me because I said that it's not radical. What I believe is not radical, he continued. I just believe that the United States should deal with the Middle East on a level playing field basis. Okay. You don't know what you're talking about. You're clueless on the Middle East. And your hatred for the Jews, of which apparently he uh, ethnically on some level is Jewish, um, is is blinding you. It's blinding you to the rea to the reality of the Palestinian Authority and blinding you to the reality of Hamas. It's not racist. And by the way, you can be as everywhere from plate pasty white albino to as dark skinned as registers on the color spectrum, and you can be a Jew. There's ethnic, Juda ethnic Judaism and there's religious Judaism. 
I mean, you can't make yourself an ethnic Jew, at least not yet, um, but you can become a religious Jew, no matter your skin color. So this whole idea that Judaism is racist is, is nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. And look, I, I, I am a Christian, so I, I believe in the new covenant. Um, but there, there's no, we, we see it all the time. You got people of every skin color that are Jewish. So d don't give me this garbage that um, Israel is, is racist or, or Israel. And, and again, it comes back to the whole idea that the fault, the, the problems with the Palestinian Arabs in the West Bank and in, and in Gaza, it's all the Jews' fault. When Israel isn't even in uh, Gaza, and they're not even, uh, and uh, they've left a good amount of Judea and Samaria, also known as the West Bank, they've left a good amount to the leadership of the Palestinian Authority, who takes aid that is given to them to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars to pay off terrorists. I know, I've said that for like the 10th time. Um, so, it was a good day. It was a good day for Israel that Netanyahu won and that he's able to form a governing coalition because there's no chance, there's absolutely no chance now that they're, that they're going to broker some uh, Palestinian state that would inevitably be set up, that would inevitably lead to um, be used as a launching pad to, um, to fight Israel. And look, this has happened before. Yom Kippur War, 1973, Six-Day War. 1967, War for Independence, 1948. This is historical. you got all the intifadas, right? Um, in more recent history. So, <laughs> not only do the Jews need their own state, but uh, ceding land to terrorists is always a bad idea. Isn't common sense nice? Okay, we're approaching uh, an hour and a half here. So, um but I did want to say a few things about the deal of the century. Uh, first, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little disappointed. I was really hoping that at the end of April, because Kushner came out and he said after the elections we would release the peace plan. But we just have some news that uh, that's not necessarily the case. This is uh, Reuters reporting, uh, White House Kushner urges world to keep an open mind about upcoming Middle East uh, peace plan. Uh, Trump's special uh, envoy for Middle East negotiations, uh, Jason Greenblatt. I mean, how good of a negotiator do you have to be to be Trump's guy as the special envoy on Middle East negotiations? I mean, congratulations. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, because... Trump is all about negotiations and deals, and you're his guy for uh, uh, Middle East negotiations? Man, uh, that's, that's quite an honor, in my opinion. That's quite an accomplishment. White House Senior Advisor Jared Kushner urged a group of ambassadors on Wednesday to keep an open mind about President Donald Trump's um, upcoming Middle East peace proposal and said that it will require compromises from both sides, a source familiar with the remarks said. Kushner said that the peace plan is to be unveiled after Israel forms a governing coalition in the wake of uh, 
Netanyahu's election victory and after the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which ends in early June. <laughs> so we're looking at June now, unfortunately, to uh, for, for the peace plan. Um, also, a few other headlines real quick. Uh, Trump administration discourages use of two-state solution. Thank God for that. Because uh, the... Well, I mean, look. The Palestinian Arabs are not going to accept this plan. They've already come out, and they have specifically said that. They, they have been lobbying against it with other Arab leaders for months. So... They're gonna re- they would they're gonna reject this plan anyway. They're gonna reject a two-state solution anyway. They've done that multiple times. In 2000, Ehud Barak gave them everything they could possibly want, and Yasser Arafat turned it down. And again in 2000 and in 2008. So I'm gonna get to that. Or I'm gonna actually end with that. Um, also, so they discourage use of two-state solution. Also, the Trump peace plan does not include uh, Jordanian-Palestinian confederation. Uh, it was kind of a, a rumor going around that basically there was this idea of a, a Jordan-Palestine-Israel uh, confederation. That kind of thing has been tossed around for a long time. Uh, Greenblatt came out and specifically said, baloney, that's not happening. So I think that is, uh, that's pretty important. So no two-state solution, no uh, confederation. Oh, and this was uh, this was interesting. So Netanyahu actually wants to name a new area in the Golan after Donald Trump. <laughs> so uh, he's already got a train station named after him in Jerusalem, and now he's uh, uh, apparently uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. After he forms a governing coalition, is going to encourage the Knesset, which is the Israeli Congress, encourage the Knesset to uh, vote on naming a neighborhood in the Golan after Trump. Look, I mean, this could have been any other president before him. But none of them had the gall to do it. And uh, Trump did. And look, it's a good thing. Look, Israel cannot possibly give up the Golan. It would be a, a launching pad for their enemies to just go after them. So it, it it's a great strategic defense area for Israel. Uh, but if it would if it were given to their enemies, it's a great position to launch an attack. So no, never will Israel give the Golan Heights and all the Trump administration basically did was recognize reality. Just why just like with Jerusalem being the capital of Israel, just like with moving the embassy to Jerusalem, all they were doing was recognizing reality. That's all he's doing. This is not difficult. Um, there's an, actually a New York Times op-ed by Jason Greenblatt, which talks about care about Gaza, blame Hamas. Great piece. I'm going to link to it on midisnewsbrief.com. Uh, uh, but I, I want to end off with, oh, also the... The Mueller report, the one thing that's kind of relevant to the Middle East, is that the Trump administration actually, before they were in office, attempted to block Resolution uh, 2334, UN Resolution 2334, which was passed in December 2016, uh, because the U.S. did not veto it. It was basically a resolution condemning Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Typically, the U.S. would veto that. 
because the U.S. has traditionally believed for a long time that this needs to be worked out, be worked out between the Israelis and the Palestinians, not in the United Nations. But because Hillary lost, and because I guess Kerry and Obama had a thing about Israel, they just abstained. They didn't vote against it. They didn't vote for it. They just abstained. How about that for like moral courage? How about that for uh, uh, leadership? They just abstained. And then, of course, they by abstaining, they voted against the Israelis at the UN Security Council. It was an utter disgrace. If Hillary had won, they wouldn't have done that. But because Trump won, they did. There's no way they would have done that if uh, Hillary had won. How do I know that? Because that's what they did before that. This was the first time that ever happened. Even the Obama, administ even the Obama administration vetoed that crap. But... All of a sudden, Hillary loses, Trump's going to be in, so we're going to abstain, and there's a UN resolution condemning Israel. But you know what? That A, a UN resolution condemning Israel is, is about as uh, valid to me as uh, Adolf Hitler saying that he likes me. Like, it, it, it's, a, it's stupid, but it, it just gives more fuel to the fire for Israel haters. So, um, but one thing that came out of the Mueller report is that Trump, uh, before, I don't know, Mueller, I'm sure, thought this was a bad thing to put it in there. I see this, and I'm like, oh, awesome, uh, that the Trump administration actually was attempting to thwart that. Uh, so that's cool. That's cool. But last story. I'm running way long, but hey, I took two weeks off, so I got a lot to get off my chest, and I didn't even get to everything I wanted to get to. I never do. I never do. So, again... Y'all know the deal of the century. If you've been listening for any amount of time, the deal of the century is one of my favorite topics. And I think, and again, and I, what, what are the claims that, that I've made? Is that the Palestinian leadership uh, is going to reject this plan because the Palestinian leadership has historically rejected every plan, every offer, even the most that they could hope for. Because, again, the goal of the Palestinians, they don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution called Palestine. They sing about it. They have TV programs about it. This is not difficult. This is not difficult. And again, I don't have an angst at all against Palestinian Arabs. I want God's best for Palestinian Arabs, for sure. But putting them under the, the auspices of the, the Fatah, and Hamas does not get them there. The Arabs in Israel have it far better than the Arabs in the West Bank and in Gaza. Far better. They have equal rights. They can serve in Knesset. Um, and actually, there's a story that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get to next week. And it's about Palestinian persecution that nobody talks about. Where, let's see how other countries... Treat the Palestinians. We ignore how other countries treat the Palestinians. And yet, Israel, who gives the Palestinians equal rights so much that they can even serve in their Knesset, they can serve in positions of authority and leadership, uh, we just blast them constantly about their treatment of the Palestinians. So, I think it's a good idea to, to talk about that and uncover that. But here is I saw this and I couldn't believe it. This is from uh, Palestinian Media Watch. Omar offered Abbas more than 100% of the West Bank, says Palestinian leader. 
As Israel, the PA, and the international community await the publication of the American Peace Plan, it is clear, based on PA leader Mahmoud Abbas's behavior in previous peace talks, that nothing the United States can offer will be enough for the PA leader. The PLO chief negotiator, Saeed Arakat, who was present at the negotiations between uh, Israel Prime Minister Ehud Olmert and Abbas in 2008, recently told PATV how generous Olmert's offer was on all final status issues. In fact, Olmert literally accepted all of the PA's publicly expressed demands and even offered Abbas more than the full area of the West Bank and Gaza, and yet Abbas still rejected the offer. I mean, he was following what his predecessor, Yasser Arafat, did. Eric had explained that the area of the West Bank and Gaza Strip before they came under Israeli control in 1967 was 6,235 square kilometers. Olmert offered Abbas even more land than that, a total of 6,260, so uh, 25 more square kilometers. At the negotiations, Arakat encouraged Abbas to accept the offer, saying that he could tell Palestinians, quote, I got more than the 1967 territories. And still Abbas rejected the offer. <coughs> Regarding Israel's capital, Jerusalem, Olmert was likewise very generous. According to Arakat, Olmert offered, quote, what's Arab is Arab. And what's Jewish is Jewish. That would have kept the Temple Mount, Judaism's holiest site, under Palestinian rule, with far-reaching implications for Jews and Judaism. The, PS, the PA has said many times they would never allow Jews access to the Temple Mount since they consider Jews' presence on any area of the Temple Mount a desecration of the nearby Al-Aqsa Mosque. I mean, isn't that... Where is the world on that? Where is the world calling out the Palestinians just utter racism against the Jews, that the Jews' very presence on the Temple Mount desecrates their holy site. Are you kidding me? If Jews had that same attitude toward Muslims, the, the world media would be, would be apoplectic. That their presence desecrates. You talk about anti-Semitism. That's anti-Semitism on a deep-rooted just hateful level. Yet Omert, despite that horrific racism, Omert, Omert still offered to give this to the Palestinians for peace. And even this wasn't enough for Arabs. And it goes on uh, more and more. So I'll link to that on MideastNewsBrief.com. Look, recent history, 2008, 2000. <clears throat> they've been offered everything that they could possibly want. And they still rejected it. Um, so again, my prediction, and we'll see if I'm right, my prediction is that the Palestinians will reject it again. The, uh, the Palestinian Arabs will reject it again. And then um, it's likely that, uh, again, uh, well, I didn't mention this before, but Netanyahu has said that he will annex parts of the West Bank. Uh, so I believe he will likely do that. I think he probably knows some of what's in this deal of the century. Um, but the, the PA leadership is going to reject this. And then it'll, it'll actually be even worse for the PA leadership. It'll be good for the, for the Arabs, but it'll be worse for the PA leadership because that's just going to mean Israeli sovereignty, Israeli sovereignty over more of the West Bank, over more of Judea and Samaria. And so we'll see what happens. We will see it hap what happens. And of course, it's one of my favorite topics. So... As uh, news develops, I'll keep you guys abreast. However, 
with Kushner saying it's not out until June, um, I'll, I'll probably focus on other things between now and then, maybe, uh, you know, certain tidbits here and there. But uh, there's plenty of other stuff to talk about, of course, in the area, including what I didn't get to today, uh, uh, sanctions on Iran, and, and Trump's actually going to be removing waivers, or uh, uh, is removing waivers for uh, countries who do business with Iran, uh, May 1st, like, done. Like, you can't do any more business with them. We've renewed the waivers several times, and you should have weaned yourself off by now. And if you keep doing business with Iran, you won't be able to do business with the United States. Talk about a common sense foreign policy and uh, peace through strength. This is blood. It's regime change without revolution, without blood. <laughs> it's just trying to topple the regime, uh, because which has been awful for the Persian people for a solid 40 years. So we'll see what happens there also. But that will do it for this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at Mideast Briefing. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And we will, of course, see you guys again next week. <laughs>